This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. In this episode, Howard discusses a few memos related to calling the market. He's interviewed by Oak Tree senior financial writer Anna Shemansky. Howard, let's begin by talking about how this discussion came about. Sure. I think this is a particularly significant discussion today, and I've been looking forward to it. About four months ago, the Financial Times asked me to participate in their column, Lunch with the FT, which comes out every Saturday. And they interview somebody of interest. Somehow I got on that list. They were going to come over here and meet me at my favorite Italian restaurant, block from the office. And that took place in late September. To prepare, they asked for some memos that might be exemplary. I went back and I read a few from the last 23 years that were written at what turned out to be turning points for the market. I noticed some common threads running through them, and it's really those threads that I look forward to discussing with you today. Let's start with Bubble.com from January of 2000. I know you've long said this was the first memo that really elicited a response. So what do you think it was about this memo? What were you saying that really made people sit up and take notice? Sure. As you say, Anna, I started writing the memos in 1990, so it was 10 years down. And literally, not only had nobody ever said they were good, nobody even said they got them. But this one had two virtues. It was right, and it was right fast. If you write slow, it doesn't do you any good. One of the first adages I ever learned is that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. And the people who might have said something about the tech bubble in 96 or 7 or 8 had to sit there and watch their clientele disappear because they were missing what looked like a phenomenon. I'd been writing throughout the fall of 1999, and I put out the memo on the first day of 2000, and the tech media telecom bubble imploded in about six months. So promptly enough for people to say, yeah, I guess that was right. And can you speak a little bit about what was in that memo? Sure. It might have been the first memo in which I talked about the broad markets, The previous memos had mostly been about investment philosophy, not about assets. But in the latter part of 1999, I was struck by the extremeness of the TMT bubble, in particular, the illogicalities and the similarities to previous episodes, which had turned out to be bubbles, which had imploded. So I thought it was really stark, the comparison The clearest memory I have from the fall of 1999 is reading a book called Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor. And he talked about past excesses, past bubbles. It so resonated for me with the present. People leaving their day jobs to trade. They did that in the South Sea bubble. People who resisted this idea that didn't make any sense until it did so well and made so many other people money that they couldn't resist anymore. People who bought into schemes or companies without thinking about the valuation, or in many cases, without even knowing what they did. That was true in the TMT bubble and also in the South Sea bubble. 
I tell the story about somebody who spent his whole existence day trading one stock for a year, and he didn't know the name of the CEO of that company. So the point is, when these manias catch on, either positive or negative, people get carried away based on their view of the future, the prospect for making or losing a lot of money, and they don't care that much about the facts or what we call basic due diligence. Yeah, it sounds so similar to also what we recently saw with crypto. Yes, <laughs> exactly, people- exactly. And the TMT bubble, especially the internet bubble or the e-commerce bubble, was built on people who were not skeptical. One of the hallmarks of a bubble is the lack of skepticism. So in the TMT bubble, there were all these companies that didn't have any profits, didn't have any revenues, didn't have any facilities. They were just an idea. And yet people were buying their stocks and bidding them up a company without any profits or maybe without any revenues would come public at $20 a share on a given Tuesday and close the day at 100 and go on to 200 the next day. And in my recent memo, What Really Matters, I talked about investing sardines versus trading sardines. In the bubbles, people think of these things as just ways to make money. It's not a company. It's not a product. It's not a balance sheet. It's just something I can buy and make money on regardless of its inherent merits. One of the things that you wrote in Bubble.com that I thought was really important is you noted that changing the world is not enough, that stock can be overvalued even if the company's underlying technology does turn out to be revolutionary. So I was hoping you could speak more about that. Let me go back another 30 years to the 60s when I joined the industry. The day I started work in September of 69 at Citibank, the bank was an adherent to the Nifty 50 school of investing, which I've spoken about a lot. It identified the 50 best and fastest growing companies in America, companies for which nothing could ever happen that was untoward, and thus companies for whose stocks there could be no price too high. If you held those stocks for the five years following the day I started, you lost almost all your money in the best companies in America. One of the earliest lessons I learned was that successful investing is not a matter of buying good things, but buying things well. It's not what you buy, it's what you pay. You can buy into something great, but if you pay a price which is too high, you can lose money. And that's basically what all bubbles are about. There's always a seed of truth, but it gets taken too far. Usually because people say, ah, no price too high. So in the Nifty 50, we had IBM, Xerox, Kodak, Polaroid, Merck, Lilly, Texas Instruments, Hewlett Packard. Great companies, no price too high. When a stock is selling at a PE ratio of 90 times earnings, that is too high in most cases when earnings are real. And when the PE ratio goes from 90 to nine, that's the easiest way to lose 90% of your money. And that's what happened to the Nifty 50. Likewise, the TMT bubble was built on the belief, for example, that the internet would change the world. And people made the leap from that statement to the belief that for a company that deals with the internet or e-commerce or something like that, there's no price too high. That's the logical leap where the failure resides. The internet has changed the world. The world is unrecognizable from the world of 25 years ago, of the years leading up to the tech bubble. But that didn't keep people from losing not 90% like they did with the Nifty 50, but 99 or 100% of their investments in hundreds of companies that were created and came public in the late 90s. And what this makes me think of is 
the importance of history. You're going back and looking at what we've seen in the past. Obviously, this idea of there being no price too high is something that quite recently we saw come up again. I know in Bubble.com and also in your memo from 2012, Deja Vu all over again, you really focus on this importance of history. So I'd like you to speak about that. Well, Santayana said that those who are ignorant of history are bound to repeat it. And Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. As I read the six memos that give rise to today's conversation, number one, I talked about, for example, Twain's quote frequently. But in many cases, what I was talking about were excesses that investors were guilty of at that time, which echoed excesses of the past, which had led to tears. Well, why can't they understand that if it caused a problem 50 years ago and another one 25 years ago, that it's likely to cause a problem today? And the answer is that a lot of people are ignorant of history or if they know history, their prudence is negated by their desire to get rich. Charlie Munger always quotes the philosopher Demosthenes who said, for that which a man wishes, that he will believe. And the power of wishful thinking is very strong and the desire to get rich is very strong. And these things can overwhelm any knowledge of prudence or any history. And as you said, so many bubbles are based on a new technology because it's that sense of, oh, well, this is new. Right. This grain of truth that most bubbles are built around usually surrounds something new. It's hard to do it with the old. It's hard to say, oh, everything that used to be true about the airline industry or airplanes is different now or the steel industry mm -hmm. or the restaurant industry. It doesn't work that way. But it's easy to believe that something we've never seen before, which bursts on the scene to acclaim, is unique in some way and not trammeled by the things that restrained other industries and companies in the past. So let's stay on deja vu all over again. There's many good lines in this memo. But there's one that really jumped out at me. You write, if I was asked to name just one way to figure out whether something is a bargain or not, it would be through assessing how much optimism is incorporated in its price. Can you elaborate on this? A few minutes ago, I mentioned that it's not what you buy, it's what you pay. No matter how good an asset is, it can be overpriced, an unsuccessful investment, or underpriced and a successful one. What matters is not the quality of the asset, but the relationship between the price and the quality. So you can get quality cheap, you can get low quality cheap, or you can get high quality, but overpay for it. And I use the word optimism to sum up the factors that result in the relationship between price and value. A company has, in some sense, an intrinsic value. That's what we value investors try to figure out. It can be elusive. It can be hard to figure out. But in theory, that intrinsic value exists. And the question is, where is that security selling in relationship to the intrinsic value? And what determines the relationship between price and value? I use the word optimism to sum it up. If people are excited about something, whether it's a high quality asset or a low quality asset, if people are excited about it, it'll probably sell at a price above its intrinsic value. And if people are turned off to it and have lost interest, it'll probably sell at a price below its intrinsic value. And we want to know that. And we love to buy assets below intrinsic value. We sometimes have to pay intrinsic value and then make our money from the increase in the intrinsic value. 
but we should be forewarned before we buy assets for more than their intrinsic value. It's, it's really a very simple calculus once you think through it. So let's move to another market call. In the years leading up to the global financial crisis, you wrote a number of memos where you talked about the risks building in markets. I'm thinking especially of There They Go Again in May 2005 and The Race to the Bottom, published in February 2007. Now, I know you don't base your market calls on macro predictions. So what were some of the key things you were seeing that made you make this call? You're right. I try not to rely on macro forecasts, but rather current observations. It's much easier to predict the present than it is to predict the future. In the environment of those years, I was seeing behavior amongst investors that I thought was reminiscent of the TMT bubble and other excesses that I've seen. So, for example, it's different this time. People always say that about something new. People were saying that, for example, residential mortgage-backed securities and subprime mortgages. It's a sure thing. No matter what price I pay, I'm sure to make money. In other words, no price too high. If I pay too high a price, there's always somebody I can sell it to. Greater fool theory. Even if I make a huge mistake and pay too much for something, somebody else will make a bigger mistake and buy it from me at a higher price. I can always get out. I know this isn't going to work forever, maybe overdone already, but I want to ride that train as long as I can. And before it turns out, I'll get out. People always say these kinds of things and others. As Twain said, these are the themes that rhyme from cycle to cycle. The details are always different, but these themes rhyme. The interesting thing about all six of these memos at the turning points was that I don't talk in any depth about the assets themselves. And I really didn't have expertise in tech stocks or the internet or residential mortgage-backed securities and so forth. It's all about just what I'm observing in the environment, which tells me too heated or too cold. Historically, when those things are true to an extreme, I think that has been enough. I think it's particularly worth noting that the global financial crisis of 07-08 was based on excessive optimism or too low standards, shall we say, applied to subprime mortgage-backed residential mortgage securities. Not only did I not know much about them, I barely knew they existed. This was not the movie, The Big Short, to the contrary. This was not a national mania. This was something that was happening in a distant, obscure corner of the fixed income world. So I didn't even know it existed. But I was able to say the environment is nutty. Investors are acting nutty. The risk is probably too high. And that's what turned out to be the case. So that diagnostic works at the extremes. When I was working on my book, Mastering the Market Cycle, I said to my son, Andrew, on reflection, I think my market calls have been about right. And he said, that's true, dad, because you did it five times in 50 years. And five times or six or four or seven, whatever the number was, the market was either so high or so low relative to intrinsic value that the logic was compelling for the call and the probability of being right was high. But if I had tried to do it 50 times in 50 years or 500 times or 5,000 times, I would not have been correct. So the point is that each of these memos identified a point in time when the excesses were pronounced. 
touching on one of the things you just mentioned about not having made 50 or 100 calls or saying that something was 10% overvalued. Another thing you've mentioned is that it's impossible to pick the absolute bottom. This is something you actually, in 2008, during the height of the financial crisis, wrote in a memo to clients. So I want you to speak about that. One of my repeated themes that hopefully rhymes from Cycle Cycle is the belief that it is folly to think you can buy at the bottom. And a lot of people, paralyzed in fear, in my opinion, trying to sound intelligent, say, we're not going to try to catch a falling knife. We're going to wait till it hits bottom. We're going to wait till the dust settles and the uncertainty is resolved. Maybe if stocks are going from 100 to 90 to 80 to 70 to 60, at 60, somebody says, I'm not going to try to catch a falling knife out of fear that it's going to go to 50 and 40 and 30, which of course it could. But it begs the question of whether it's cheap at 60. And if it's cheap at 60, in my view, they should buy. And if it goes to 50, they should buy more, having revalidated the thesis. But to say we're going to wait for the bottom strikes me as all wet. What is the bottom? The bottom is the day before the rally starts. So if it's the day before something, how can you know that it's the day? The only time you know that Tuesday was the bottom is by looking back and saying, oh yeah, they didn't go down anymore from there. They went up. By definition, you never know when you're at the bottom. And the other thing that's important is in some fanciful version of the truth, the bottom is the day that the last highly moted seller sells. It doesn't take much selling to create the bottom. It doesn't take much buying to start the rally. Just optimism has to replace pessimism at the margin. But if the bottom is the day the last seller sells, then by definition, there's not much for sale on that day. It's wrong to think about initiating your position at the bottom. And I believe that if you're like us and you have to buy a substantial amount to make an impact, then I think you should say, we are willing to buy on the way to the bottom and maybe the little bit we can pick up at the bottom. And we're willing to buy once the bottom has been passed and we're on the way up. It's important to bear in mind that you might say, well, we'll buy on the way down and on the way up. On the way up, you can't get much. Why? Because optimism has replaced pessimism. On the way down, pessimism is still increasing. The urgency of getting out is growing and you can buy a lot. So I think that's extremely important. We didn't wait in the fall of 08 till we got to something at the bottom. My memo of that time to investors in some of our funds called current developments, I think actually allowed for the fact that things would probably go down more. But we said, this is the time to get going. Why? Because things were cheap. And they had gone down substantially already. They were likely to go down further. Who knows how much or for how long. But the time to start buying is not at the point where they're not going to go down anymore or much more. It's when they get cheap. If you wait and you say it's cheap today, but it'll be cheaper tomorrow, I'm going to wait, and you're wrong, then you miss it. Missing a bargain is much more significant than buying into something early. Because if you buy into something early, but it's cheap, there'll probably come a time when you can sell it at a profit. But if you miss and you hold off and you miss it, then you'll never get a chance to participate in that bargain. Yeah, this just makes me think of what you were saying earlier and you said often about focusing on intrinsic value and thinking as an investor, not a trader. Right, that's really the key, isn't it? The trader doesn't want to buy today if it'll be lower tomorrow. 
the real investor doesn't care. And in fact, there's this terrible, shall I say, fear that something will be lower tomorrow. I was just making a series of visits to clients in the last few months, renewing my travel habits post the pandemic, finally. And what I said to them is something going down tomorrow is equivalent to something being put on sale in a department store. When something goes on sale in a department store, more people go and more people buy. It's only in the stock market or the bond market that when things get further markdowns, people become less willing to buy. Buffett says, I believe, I like hamburgers. And when hamburgers go on sale, I eat more hamburgers. And you can't argue with that. It makes a hell of a lot more sense than saying, I like this stock, but I hope the price doesn't go down. If something has gone from 100 to 70, that's a markdown. If it then goes to 60 or 50, that's a further markdown. And isn't that a reason to buy rather than to not buy? And then I think in the opposite way, real people who will buy simply because something has gone up. That's right. In Deja Vu all over again, I reviewed the 1979 Business Week article, The Death of Equities. It was actually issued on the doorstep of probably the greatest 20-year period in the history of the stock market. But in 2012 or 13, when I wrote Deja Vu all over again, people were again saying stocks have done so badly that nobody will ever buy them. In other words, they've been marked down from 100 to 80 to 60 to 40. And that's a reason why people won't buy them. And if you just applied common sense and you say everything's on sale, that is actually a reason why people might buy them. And so that's a time to get going. I think there's never been a piece of journalism that was as wrong as the death of equities. Could you actually speak a little bit more about the death of equities and what that piece was about? Yeah, well, it just goes to show you how what people try to pass off as logic can be illogical and not introspective and superficial. So here the author was saying things like, stocks are down so much, nobody will ever buy them again. Stocks have done so poorly that companies are taking public companies private. Well, if companies are willing to buy public stocks to obtain ownership of the underlying companies, why shouldn't investors buy public stocks for the same reason? But to say things like stocks have done so badly, nobody will ever buy them is totally illogical. In one of the memos that I reviewed for the FT and for you today, it says that the extrapolator believes that he is respecting history. He has seen something go from two to four to six to eight to 10 to 12 to 14. And he says it's going to go to 16, 18, 20 because I respect history and I respect the path that it's on. But the real understanding of history would say things are cyclical. Things regress to the mean. If something has gone from two to four to six to eight to 10 to 12 to 14, it might be too high. The underlying intrinsic value may start to decline. The increase that we've seen so far may have borrowed from the increase that normally would be expected to occur in the future. But that's what the death of equities did. And that was a huge mistake. I think it says in the memo that in the two decades, the S&P, maybe I started with 82, which was the beginning of the uplift. But I think it says that for 20 years, the S&P appreciated 18.6% a year, which is about almost double the historic rate of return. So it was the greatest buying opportunity, in my opinion, in history, this writer was so distressed by the cheapening that had taken place that he thought it was a time to avoid. Now, what happened is that when we had the tech media telecom bubble of the late 90s collapse in 2000, 
the stock market, the S&P 500 and the whole stock market was down in 2001 and two. And that was the first three-year decline since 1939. So we had gone 60 years without a three-year decline. And that turned off people to stocks. So they didn't buy them. They looked into hedge funds, private equity, other forms of so-called alternative investing. That's when I think that the word alternative investment was coined. And that's when private equity funds went from 2 billion to 4 billion to 8 billion and so forth. And stocks had a zero return from the high in 2000 until the low, which was right around the time of deja vu all over again. And here were new stories appearing saying stocks have done so badly, nobody will ever buy them. And repeating that illogicality. And now that I think of it, maybe you would say that a lot of what I'm pursuing in my observations is illogicalities that are being perpetuated that shouldn't. And what is the source of those illogicalities? It's emotion or psychology, or you might say optimism and pessimism in excess. Now let's turn to early 2020. This was another market call. You wrote a memo to clients. I believe it was March 19th, which I actually think is four days before (laughs) the market bottom. Yes. And you noted that obviously there's tremendous uncertainty, but it may still be a good time to buy. Obviously, the pandemic was very different than other crises. So I'm curious what you were thinking at that time. What most of the memo was about was the disease itself. Mm -hmm. This was March 19th, as you say, when I wrote my first memo, in the pandemic a couple of weeks earlier. I quoted from a epidemiologist at Harvard, Michael Lipsitch, who said that in normally when we're studying things, we have past history, extrapolation from prior experience and supposition. But in this case, we had no history and we had no past experiences to extrapolate from. It was all supposition, but we all tried to figure out what was a reasonable supposition. The outlook was bleak. And we talked about the virus growing exponentially. It was believed capable of reaching some very bad numbers. And of course it did. We had a million Americans die. So I think the memo might've been sufficiently negative, but maybe not. But let's go back to the beginning. For every truth, for every reality, for every actual set of circumstances, for every actual intrinsic value, there's the possibility that prices go so low that they understate the value. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know how bad the epidemic would be, the pandemic. We only knew one thing, that prices had come down a great deal. Prior to the pandemic, I would say that stock prices were full, but not highly excessive. The PE ratio I'm doing this from memory, might've been 22. In the TMT bubble, I think it was 32. That was crazy. 22 compared to a norm of 16 is high, but not crazy. And then from February 19th, which I think was the high to March 19th, which was the date of the memo, I think they had come down about a third. So if they were fairish to slightly high and came down a third, they were probably cheapish. I had no reason to say they weren't going lower, but I'm actually proud of that memo. And I'll read a bit, if I may. Mm -hmm. Even though there's no way to say the bottom is at hand, the conditions that make bargains available certainly are materializing. 
Given the price drops and selling we've seen so far, I believe this is a good time to invest, although, of course, it may prove not to have been the best time. There's no reason to say we're at the bottom. No one can argue that you should spend all your money today, but equally, no one can argue that you shouldn't spend any. I don't view things as black and white, right or wrong. This is the time to buy. This is not the time to buy. Sometimes you buy a little. Sometimes you buy a moderate amount. Sometimes you buy a lot, but not risk on, risk off. So I conclude by saying the more you want to garner potential gains and don't mind mark-to-market losses, the more you should invest here. Why? Because we were getting bargains. On the other hand, the more you care about protecting against interim markdowns and are able to live with missing opportunities for profit, the less you should invest. But is there really an argument for not investing at all? In my opinion, the fact that we're not necessarily at the bottom is not such an argument. And as you say, the market hit its low on March 23rd. So the 19th, I think, was a Thursday. It hit the low on Monday the 23rd. The Fed came out and clarified and amplified its program. And from there, for the next 21 months, basically through the end of 2021, the market went straight up. As I recall, Anna, from the 23rd of March to the end of 2020, I think the S&P was up 62%. And then I think it was probably up about 29% or something like that in 21. So this was an opportunity to double your money. Could you have lost money? Sure. Could you have had some markdowns? Sure. But you were buying on a substantial sale. And if you were willing to say the world is not going to end the pandemic is not going to wipe out the population and it's not going to decimate the economy and the business community, then it was just a reasonable starting point. Anybody who said in late March, no way, the pandemic has a long way to go. I'm not going to touch it. Obviously missed one of the great opportunities. It's interesting to me in that section you just read, you didn't say anything about the macro. You didn't say anything about interest rates. And as you said, obviously the Fed so actions are part of what did cause this, but that's not what you were focused on. Absolutely. And let's not forget that the appreciation that materialized, really, most people questioned it. I would say that from March 23rd, the low point, through the end of the year, probably the most often heard sentiment was, the disease is so horrible. How can the market be going up? It can't be legitimate. It can't be reasonable. And the answer is that the Fed was more powerful in the short run. There's an old saying, you can't fight the Fed. And this was really, I guess, probably the best example we've ever seen. Because in the face of terrible fundamentals and this horrible disease, the Fed engineered a rescue of the economy and the capital markets, which caused, number one, 2020, this terrible pandemic year, to be the best year in history for raising money for low-grade credit instruments and a year of very substantial gains in the stock market on a full-year basis. This idea of not trying to predict the macro and your earlier comments about the fallacy of believing it's different this time may make a listener think about one of your recent memos, Sea Change, because it obviously is discussing potentially large macro changes. I think that my answer is that it's not like I'm predicting a change from one normal atmosphere or environment to another. I think we lived through an abnormal environment from 09 through 21, in which interest rates were zero 
most of the time. If you had a reasonable business, you couldn't default or go bankrupt. In fact, it was terribly easy to raise money and terribly cheap. The economy was really chugging along. We had the longest economic recovery in history and the longest bull market in history. And it all stemmed from the fact that capital market conditions and money market conditions were not left alone to do their thing. They were bossed around by the Fed, which produced the kind of environment that it wanted to rescue the world first from the global financial crisis and then from the pandemic, but that kept interest rates, I would say, unnaturally low. First of all, the Fed took the Fed funds rate to zero, I think it was at the end of 08 or beginning of 09. And I think that was the first time that it was ever zero. That was pretty radical. In researching the memo, I was surprised to learn that it kept it at zero for seven years. Most people wouldn't guess that. Clearly, by 2012 or 2013 or 2014, the economic recovery was well-established. Why would you keep the Fed funds rate at an emergency level? Interest rates of zero, it's kind of like adrenaline. Somebody has a heart attack, you give them adrenaline or nitroglycerin and it brings them back. But nobody starts their day with a daily injection of adrenaline for seven years. That's not very healthy. Why would the Fed keep rates at an emergency level? I think the answer is they kind of got into a trap where people said, no, we like it at zero. And if you raise it above zero, we're going to throw a temper tantrum. You may recall October 2nd was the day Mastering the Market Cycle was published. So I can remember that on October 4th, we're talking about 2018 now, I think the Fed funds rate hit three and a quarter because Powell was trying to raise interest rates so that, among other things, if there was a, a recession, he could lower it and pull off a rescue. You can't rescue the economy by cutting interest rates from 1% because there's just no room. So it got up to three and a quarter. The market threw a temper tantrum. I believe that the fourth quarter of 2018 was the worst fourth quarter in history. And they retreated from that. At the beginning of 2019, with the economy strong and in the ninth or 10th year of an economic recovery, they're cutting interest rates. So I don't think they want to get into that again. I don't think they want to be perpetually at zero or close to it. And the other thing is that the Fed pays lip service to wanting to have a neutral interest rate. And a neutral interest rate is one which is neither stimulative nor restrictive. It's just what it is. Naturally occurring, mm -hmm. I think, is a fair description. When they last talked about it last summer, I think it was July, uh, they said they think that the neutral interest rate is two and a half. So from that verbiage, and logically, I would expect to see two and a half be kind of a norm not zero or a half or even one. So that's my judgment. Now I'm applying common sense, which is always dangerous, but that's where I come out. Yeah, and it's again, that idea of when something is an extreme. Yes, I think you're right. Absolutely. That's a great observation. All these things are about extremeness. When the market investor behavior is extremely optimistic or extremely pessimistic, when the valuations numerically are extremely high, or extremely low, then you have a chance of making an observation that will hold water. But in the meantime, in the middle, where the psychology and the valuations are not extreme, where they're plus 10, minus 20, you just don't have a very high probability of being right. So do you have any final thoughts? Yes, I do. Just to recap, 
Psychology swings to extreme highs and extreme lows. And it is from the extremeness of the swings that the opportunity or the danger comes. When we're at extreme highs, there's danger. When there's extreme lows, there's opportunity. The extreme swings of the market ensue from extreme swings toward optimism or toward pessimism. The enabling mechanism is these beliefs that people hold, especially in extreme times, that permit them to make these mistakes. It's different this time. There's no price too high. It'll never go down. If it's about to go down, I'll sell it to somebody else. I can always get out. It helps to be my age and have lived through so much market history. But the great thing about humans is, in theory, they can learn other than from experience. You can read about these things. You can read the Chancellor book, for example. But the key is, as you're reading about the 18th century, you must say, is this relevant to today? You don't read it just as a point of interest or for your amusement or to pass the time. You say, what are the proper inferences to draw? Inferences are a lot of what I think about. What does the book tell me about history that's relevant today? What does the behavior that I'm seeing today of stock prices maybe tell me about the underlying investor psychology and might it be erroneous? And if so, in which direction and to what extent? So you just have to be curious and seeking and conscious of this role of history and role of psychology. And then I think you can understand what's going on around you. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. Well, I enjoyed it too. Thank you, Anna, as always. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd like to announce the release of a new podcast, The Insight by Oak Tree Capital. This show will feature the type of in-depth conversations you've come to expect from the memo, as well as audio versions of thought-provoking essays about a range of financial topics, including big changes impacting direct lending, growing opportunities in distressed debt, and more. You'll hear from many of Oaktree's leading experts, including Howard. They'll go beyond today's market chatter and focus on what we believe really matters for investors today. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree.
Audiation.